Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're in the studio with Meg Fisher. Meg is a nine-time world champion cyclist and triathlete who competes for Team USA. She represented USA in the 2012 London Paralympics, where she won gold and silver. Meg moved to Missoula in 2001 and now calls the Valley Home. Many moons ago, Meg was born in Canada and grew up on a cattle farm in the town of Rocky Mountain House, Alberta. Meg went to high school in Chicago, learned the definition of good pizza, then escaped back to the West. She is now finishing up her doctorate in physical therapy with the plan of returning to Missoula. Meg, thanks for coming on the show and doing the interview. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We first met many moons ago at the outdoor program. Oh, yeah. Back on campus. I think that was the best place to work. Definitely great people, good Mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. Changed my life. And you now live in Seattle. Uh, Yes. But you miss Missoula. Very much. Seattle is a great place. I think it's a better place to visit than call home, but that's just me. Certainly many people live there and are very happy, but... Potentially, that's a city where you could live in the city, have a city job, enjoy the city life, but escape, because there are some great outdoor locations nearby Seattle. Oh, very much so. And that's what a lot of people do. But I think I got spoiled living here in Missoula, because I could leave my front door and have some of the greatest mountain bike adventures. Or, you know, in one day, you can go rafting, mountain biking, and then go for ice cream at the Big Dipper. Whereas in Seattle, it takes a bit more planning and more patience because of traffic. Mm Mm-hmm. Meg, tell us about where you grew up and how outdoor adventure was part of your childhood. I was born in Alberta, Canada. And for those of you that aren't fluent in Canadian, that's in the western part of the country. British Columbia is the furthest west province. And then I grew up on the eastern front of the Rockies in a town called Rocky Mountain House. It's in the foothills. It was a great place to be. We had a farm that's been in the generations for I don't even know how long. Originally, the town had started from the Hudson Bay Company because it's along the banks of the North Saskatchewan River. So the Hudson Bay Company had a fort there. And then, as time would have it, the Fishers put a farm there. And back in the 70s, the provincial government came and took part of our farm and made it into a park. So now there's actually park buildings and you can go for a tour. They tore down my great-granddad's shop and now it's an archaeological dig and when we would plow the fields, we'd pull up arrowheads. And there, did I say there's bison? There's bison on there now. And it's along the banks, and they have parts of the river are actually named after our, our family. Like some of the rapids, there's the Fisher Rapids and the Briarly Rapids. And I have part of my relations are the Briarlys. And so it's a really fun place to grow up. We had cows, horses, dogs, chickens. The neighbors down the road aways had pigs. So we could go down and hold little baby piglets and make sure, you know, they go back into the right pen with their mom. And calving season was always great because you just go out there and you count the heads and then you see if there's any new ones. You see new calves being born. And it was just a wonderful place to grow up. I got my first horse when I was three. Um, Her name was Flicka, a little Appaloosa mare. Technically, she was a pony, but 
I called her a horse just to make her feel good. And uh, we just had some grand adventures up in the hills, uh, heading higher up into the Rockies, uh, Ram River Falls. And back up in there, it was just so vibrant and alive. The wildflowers, the smells, the freshness of everything. And the summer storms, I think, will always stick out in my mind because we're in the foothills. So you can watch the storms build up along the west and you can see them spill over the mountains and then roar across not quite the plains, but the foothills, to you. And they just boil and churn. I'm thinking like when you make a milkshake and you can see it just boiling inside the blender and that's kind of what would happen. And then it would fall over and on top of you and it would rain and hail and wind and then it would be done. And then the hay fields would just be so crisp. I loved my granddad and the farmhands. They would go down. And since I was a girl, I wasn't really supposed to be a farmhand. So I could make a big lunch with my grandma, and we would bring lunch down to the guys in the field, and you'd march across the knee-high, just freshly cut hay, and the little bugs. I mean, so many bugs. It was just a wonderful place to grow up. I can't say it enough how alive it felt. Every time I would go there, even after I moved away, I would get out of the car and then just run around and around and just think, man, I'm free. Night times, I think, really stick out in my mind as well because the northern lights dance across the sky in the summertime. And then on a clear night, when you look up, there's quite a big sky like it is here, but you look out on the horizon, you can see stars, and then you start tilting your head back further and further and further, and you just get lost in the stars. You almost fall on your back because you you haven't seen all the stars yet. And I love that. There's just nothing more special than a big sky. So I think that's one of the things that brought me to Missoula. Before living in Missoula, I lived in Chicago and not much of a sky there. Some pretty bright sunsets. But then I learned the sunsets are so technicolor because of the air pollution. I didn't put that together immediately, but now I know it's because of all the cars and smog in the air. But yeah, they are some pretty colorful sunsets. But adventure has always been a part of my life. In in the Rockies, in Rocky Mountain House, we'd always go take our horses out every night and go for a little wanders through the woods or bigger adventures up into the hills. And it was always talking about hunting and the things that my grandparents had done. I wanted to learn about them. My grandpa had been a a logger in an old logging camp. So he would go up into the hills. And this is back in the day when they used teams of horses to log. And that's just something that I think is a lost art, really. Just big, long saws. And I don't know how that would even happen. And my grandma was a home ec teacher. And so both my grandma and my granddad had gone to school in one-room schoolhouses, and my granddad, growing up on the farm, he had rode his horse to school, quite literally. And my dad, he's a cowboy. I mean, not only was he a cowboy, though, he wanted to move away from the farm, so he also became a fisherman. He loves the ocean, so he learned these skills to draw him away from the farm. So he learned to fish. He learned to work on computers. Oil and gas is pretty big up in that area, so he also did oil and gas so he's got this diverse skill set. So he can rope the cow, milk it, doctor it, and then, then load it in the back of the truck and, I don't know, do the spreadsheet to sell it or something. You know, he just has this diverse skill set that I, I really admire. I think I grew up with that sense of being independent and wanting to get out there and explore. Meg, I want to ask you about your childhood and your early adventures, particularly a moment for you, be it a close encounter with death that... After the situation happened, you walked away and learned a lesson. It changed your life. It was a moment with a very domesticated animal. It was with a horse. I grew up riding horses, and I was taught to see them as 
tools less as living and breathing creatures, that they were just maybe like a truck. You know, you take your truck out, you make sure it's got gas, you know, make sure you feed your horse, groom your horse, whatever. You, you, can, you can imagine what I'm talking about. But I didn't really put together that this was a creature that had a mind of its own and that it was allowing me to be on its back and it was trusting me to take it places and be responsible. And I recall we had gone down to the river and it was quite a sketchy trail. It was really steep to go down and it was kind of scary. And my horse went down and we were riding along the river. I think we were looking for some cows and I was with my aunt and she shared with me that you can't be so rough with your horse. You've got to earn its trust. You've got to really make sure you're setting your horse up for success and putting yourself in a safe position and gave me this lesson. And it was just very small, very succinct. And I was like, your horse has a brain. And that just blew my mind. For some reason, as a little kid, I just didn't put that together that I was on its back by sheer grace, by its acceptance of me. And so I needed to be smart about it and respect that. And I think that was a lesson that I've taken forward in that my relationship with the wild and with other creatures in this world is that they all have will of their own. And for me to be with them or for them to allow me to be with them, I have to respect that. We're in the studio with Meg Fisher. Meg is a nine-time world champion cyclist and triathlete who competes for Team USA, She represented USA in the 2012 London Paralympics, where she won gold and silver. Meg, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of your early childhood adventures. The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Fishing in the Dark. That era of country in general, I think, speaks to me, but that song in particular. I was a kid at the time, so I didn't quite get the love in you and those, but getting out there, playing in the dark, playing with fish, yep, that was it. And now back to the trail less traveled with Mandela. Meg, back in the early 2000s, you had a life-changing incident. Yeah, 2000 was a year for me, one that I'll never forget. It started off as the best year of my life. I had finished my freshman year of college, and that's pretty cool. And I had returned to Chicago from Missoula, where I was teaching tennis. I was just... So happy. Oh, my gosh. I was teaching tennis. I was getting paid to play tennis. I mean, that's great stuff. And I was with my best friend, my partner in crime. Her name was Sarah Jackson. And we were both teaching and had made plans where she had applied and been accepted to the university here to become an English teacher. And I was going to come back here in the fall and start the second year of my wildlife biology degree. We were just so happy together. Two peas in a pod. Between tennis sessions, we had arranged to sign a lease on an apartment here in Missoula. So we had loaded up her car with pretty much everything we owned, and we're going to do a week-long trip where we would just quickly drive from Chicago, sign a lease, drop off our stuff, and then head back to Chicago, finish teaching a second session, and then move to Missoula and start a really happy life together. During that trip from Chicago to Missoula, tragedy. seems such a small word. People ask me all the time, what happened? I don't know what happened. I still don't know what happened. It was a car accident. Again, those two words don't mean enough, car accident. But we were driving from Chicago and in the middle of South Dakota on I-90. Our car rolled eight and a half times. 
a lot of energy to roll eight and a half times, and we stopped upside down on the roof of the car. What I've heard from reports is that other people stopped and we just stood on the side of the road and looked at our car, and the rumor was that we were dead. Nobody went in to check on us until this lady, Diane Dassinger. She was a waitress at the next town we were going to stop at, which was a few miles away. We were going to stop a few miles away, but we crashed before that. She crawled in and cleared the rocks and grass and stuff from her mouths because we were choking. I immediately started breathing, and she cleared up Sarah's mouth, and Sarah started breathing, but not quite so well. And it was very obvious that Sarah was very injured. Dan was able to pull me out. She was able to get me out of my seatbelt because my seatbelt was also choking me. She pulled me out, and then she pulled Sarah out. The next two people to stop was a cardiac surgeon to Rapid City Regional Hospital, which would be the closest major medical center. That gentleman called Life Flight, and so before even the ambulance was on the way, there was a Life Flight coming. This is back 12 years ago, so cell phones weren't then what they are now, so the communication, I think, was somewhat slow, but they were able to get the help that we needed coming, and Life Flight didn't pick me up from the scene, but some ambulances came and they took us to the local town hospital, and not long after... Sarah succumbed to her injuries. It still still hurts. I still remember that. You know, I never got to say goodbye. The last things I said to her is, like, I'm going to close my eyes because I was going to be the next driver. I was going to take a little rest. And uh, I woke up a week later in Rapid City Regional Hospital in the ICU, and my parents were there, and I kind of knew something bad had happened. Because, you know, when you look down at your sheets when you're laying in bed, you see two bumps where your feet are the little creatures under the sheets. Instead of having two bumps, I had one. And I thought, oh, this is bad. For better or worse, the head injury, I was out again. You know, I'd wake up and then fall back asleep. The drugs and the head injury were kind of my saving grace at that point because I never was conscious for long enough to really have to deal with what had happened. But eventually, the lights stayed on long enough and I realized what had happened. And yes, Sarah had, she died and I was down, uh, down a foot, <laughs> but I didn't lose my whole foot. I only lost just part of it, just enough to really make it hard to get around. Ironically, I, I woke up and looked down and saw my toes were gone. And I thought I better call my coach and tell him that I'm not going to make it to practice next fall. But over time, a month later, I was discharged from the hospital and I was taken by fixed wing life flight back to Chicago. I had one more surgery after that, and then I started the process of getting a prosthetic leg made. And I believed, since I was just missing the front half of my foot, that they'd be able to make me some motorized, electronic, bionic foot, and I would get back to doing everything I wanted to do. I thought that this was just a mere setback. Maybe it was my age, I was a bit naive, or also the, the age where you think nothing bad can really happen to you and that you'll bounce back. And I bounced pretty well, but... The foot that they made for me wasn't nearly what I expected. Just imagine kind of one of those old ski boots, a little clamshell style where you just squeeze the two halves together around your shin and bolt it down with, I used Velcro, but you could use the little ratcheting clips basically. And it had a carbon plate on the bottom of it. So just like a ski boot, my ankle didn't move. I couldn't feel it. It went up all the way around my shin. And that's what I was given. And here I was at 19 with this heavy boot around my ankle that I couldn't do much with. 
the bones that were left in my ankle had some pretty bad arthritis and were fairly injured and not particularly functional for me. I wasn't going to be playing tennis again. I couldn't go hiking very much. I could walk about the length of a football field before I got the sensation of bones poking through the bottom of my foot, which is uncomfortable. And I had lost so much through that accident. And I I'd lost Sarah. And I, that day goes by where I don't think about her or the loss for her family. And I had lost what I identified myself as. Like I was outdoorsy. I loved to ski. I loved to hike, mountain bike. I played tennis. And that was all over. And so who was I? What was I? I, I lost a lot of my friends because they kept living their lives. And it was a life that I couldn't really lead anymore. And it was not the sunniest part of my life. But speaking with doctors, they said if I amputated my leg higher to a transtibial or below knee amputation, not like the sandwich meat. People hear below knee and they think sandwich meat, but it's not the sandwich meat. It's a type of amputation. And so I did that. They told me the research and the cool feet that you can get are for people of that level. So quite literally, I walked into a hospital and signed a piece of paper. And then that afternoon, they wheeled me into surgery and cut off my leg, which is kind of weird. It's not an everyday occurrence. I look back and I don't know if it was the right decision, but it's not a decision that I can question. There's no use in spending time. It's just pointless. So I don't, but I did it. So I'm a typical trans tibial or below knee amputee. And so my left foot, it's gone. But I have a lot more freedom now than I did prior to that. I have had such a fulfilling life with one foot. I mean, my life is more fulfilling with one foot than it could have ever been with two. It's strange, but it's been liberating. And I imagine Sarah is up on a cloud somewhere. She's just over my shoulder. That's what I believe. I believe she's just over my shoulder. And I want to show her this world. I want to carry her on my shoulder everywhere. And I have had the greatest life. I run. I bike. I, I love my life. 11 months after I lost my leg the second time, I did my first triathlon. I'd always held triathletes to a really high standard. So I was like, how can a body do three sports in one day? I thought that was unheard of. I also thought rugby players were pretty darn cool. I thought they were pretty badass and I wanted to be one. But if you saw me, I'm like maybe five, four. I don't weigh very much. I'm not very intimidating. I'm originally from Canada, so I'm inherently nice. I just, <laughs> I'm not really wired to be a rugby player. And plus, my alcohol tolerance is not anywhere where it needs to be to keep up with them off the field. So I played for the better side for a little bit. I tackled somebody. I can say I tackled somebody. I've also been tackled, and it's not really the sport for me, but it was a lot of fun while I did it. And then I got into triathlon. I did the Grizzly Try. It was uh, 11 months pretty much after my amputation that I did my first triathlon, the Grizz. I wasn't last. I thought I was going to be last, but I set this goal for myself to not be last, and I was seventh from last. And the fact that I wasn't last just blew my mind. And by crossing that finish line, I became a triathlete, which is an empowering word or feeling to do all that in one day. It just feels really good. So I kept doing it. I kept doing more triathlons, and I kept trying to push my physical envelope because I realized I was capable of so much more than I allowed myself to believe. And that's a very cool feeling. The sky felt like it was the limit, so... I started doing mountain biking, and I was horrible at it, but my feeling with skiing and mountain biking in most adventures is that if you don't fall down, you're not trying hard enough. So I fell down a lot, 
and I learned a lot. And now that I'm a little older, I try to fall less for other reasons, but I still believe falling down is a great lesson. So I kept doing it. Mountain biking, great fun. I got back into skiing, and I just kept doing more and more and more. I did some off-road triathlon, Xterra, which I highly recommend. Anytime you get to put spandex on and get dirty, I think that's fun. And I became the first female-challenged athlete to ever do an Xterra off-road triathlon. So I just kept doing more and more and more of those. And I was never last in those, and I was never close to last. It was incredible to me that I could participate and compete on the same level as so many able-bodied athletes. That the box I had put myself in, one, is being a tennis player. Because if you think about tennis players, we don't like to play in the wind. We don't play in the rain. It's too cold. Don't really like that either. There's just this nice little window for tennis players. And so I called myself a delicate flower. And then as a disabled or challenged athlete, I'd kind of put this box around myself that there's only so much that I was capable of. But through Xterra Triathlon, I'd found out that I was capable of even more. And along the way, I had crossed paths with another para-athlete in the western Montana area. His name's Sam Cavanaugh. He's from Bozeman. He lost his leg in an avalanche. And man, that guy gets after it. And he races for the U.S. Paralympic cycling team. And he got me in contact with the coach and... They invited me down to a training camp, and turns out if you can ride Navi fat tires, I can also ride skinny ones in a straight line, and I can go pretty fast. So that kind of started this big rolling stone of momentum going, and it has just continued. I'm an athlete again, and I'm a professional athlete at that, and that's pretty darn awesome. And I owe a lot of gratitude to a lot of people and a lot of credit because I certainly haven't gotten here alone. And We could be here all day if I talked about everybody who's helped me get this far because, Mandela, you're one of them. I mean, my job at the outdoor program all those years ago was a great awakening, and that was during the time when I was learning how much I am capable of doing because I got this job at the outdoor program through a friend, through a friend, you know, how it works in Missoula, and what an awesome place to be. But I never felt like I quite belonged because I didn't feel as tough or as able or as confident as the people I was working around. But it turns out I could probably do what you do. Maybe not as well or with as much grace and some of those yoga maneuvers which you do. That's okay. I don't need to do them. But (laughs) things that I want to do, I can do them. And I know that. I have that confidence. And I owe a lot of gratitude. I'm so thankful. Missoula definitely changed my life for the better. And one of the creatures that changed your life was a dog named Betsy. Oh, yes. I have to give Betsy, oh, my little dog, my little spotted dog. She is... The light of my life. She is a 45-pound Border Collie Blue Heeler. And back in 2006, I was walking around Blue Mountain and experienced some pain in my left leg, which is not uncommon. And But that pain, what was uncommon, was that the pain didn't go away. And it got worse to the point where I I couldn't walk. And the doctors in the area and the prosthetists, the people who make prosthetic legs, they couldn't figure out why I couldn't walk. And they had been so bold as to say that I may never walk again. And at 23, that is devastating. That's, I mean, I had led that really active life, then gotten hurt, and then regained that, and now I was back on crutches again. The only good thing I can say of that period was that I had really huge arms. I mean, from crutching, I want to say active, so I swam a lot, and then I was using my crutches. So if you use your arms a lot, it turns out they get kind of big. But other than that, that was really hard. And I had this dog, Betsy. I was paired with Betsy. And Betsy did so much for me. She became opposed to things like, you know, the nuts and bolts. Like she can pick up stuff that I drop. She could pull a wheelchair. She can open a door. I mean, those really rudimentary skills, I suppose. 
but the intangible things that she provided are really what changed my life. Her happy spirit, she was happy to see me, and plus her energy. Holy smokes, a two-year-old Border Collie healer has got limitless energy. And eventually I learned to walk again. I got a new prosthetic leg that enabled me to walk without pain. And I still had this dog, this awesome dog. And yes, she could still pull a wheelchair if I needed it, fetch my crutches if I needed it. But what I wanted was an adventure buddy. And she became the ultimate adventure buddy. I'd seen people mountain biking with their dogs around Blue Mountain. And I thought, I want to try that with her. And of course, she was more fit than I was. I mean, I'd be going up the easiest incline, just breathing so hard. And Betsy would be way up the trail being like, come on, like catch up. And I really wanted to be as fit as my dog. So she became the carrot in front of me that kept me going. And eventually I became as fit as Betsy. And we have had some of the greatest adventures going for mountain bike rides. I got into rollerblading. I run. I'm not a great runner, but I run and we run in the neighborhoods in Missoula. You name it, we did it. And Betsy has just been my sidekick forever. Eight years now, she's just been my constant companion. And she changed my life. This little 45-pound spotted ball of fur just has had one of the biggest impacts in my life. And I, I can't say thank you to her enough. And she is the reason why I got back to living. I think everybody should have a dog, definitely. They're such great energy, such great spirits. And I've gotten to speak in some schools. I Here in Missoula, I spoke at their field day. And I learned the saying somewhere along the line. It's like, if you have a fat dog, it's a sign that you're not getting enough exercise. And I shared that with the kids. And then I got these letters back from all these little kids saying, you know, I took my dog for a walk. I walked around the block three times. And I think, how much good are these dogs doing in their lives? I mean, not only teaching them skills and I mean, dogs have been shown to decrease blood pressure. So, I mean, they're having all this positive impact, but also in physical health. There's no way I'm going to get diabetes because my dog won't let me sit still long enough. We're in the studio with Meg Fisher. Meg is a nine-time world champion cyclist and triathlete who competes for Team USA. She represented USA in the 2012 London Paralympics, where she won gold and silver. Meg, I'd like to talk to you about your training for the Paralympics. You talked about how you got into it, and it must take a lot of training and practice every day to train your body and eat good food to get in to the Paralympics and win gold and silver. Congratulations. I mean, that is a huge accomplishment, Meg. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was a dream come true. As a little kid, I remember watching the Olympics and being in awe of the athletes, and I wanted to be the next Jackie Joyner-Kersey or Bonnie Blair. I didn't really care what it was. I just wanted to be there. And then I thought I was going to be a tennis player. I was convinced growing up that I'd be a professional tennis player. And then college hit and I realized everybody who's winning the tours is pretty much older than them already. And I was completely happy to be playing tennis here for the Grizz. And that was another dream come true to play college tennis. But I realized probably wasn't going to go with the games. But then I got hurt. And my life changed in so many ways. I didn't know about it immediately, but the Paralympics is a movement out there that is growing. It was actually better attended in the London Games than the Olympics. Like There were more people there. It felt like a rock concert. I was convinced that I was the Rolling Stones because if you could have been there in the velodrome, the noise and the energy that was there, it was intoxicating. But lead up to the Games, it was a long time coming. Every step that I've taken along the way has led me towards earning a position on the cycling team. 
back to Betsy, you know, just riding here in Missoula and just gaining that base fitness. And then in the year or two leading up to the games, just ramping up that intensity. Living in Seattle was nice. I'm right now a physical therapy student at the University of Washington in Seattle. So outside of school, I get to ride my bike. And that's what keeps me sane in that big city. But it's kind of nice that they don't really have a true cold winter because I could ride my bike year-round outside and get some pretty awesome training in. And there's a number of phenomenal cyclists in the Seattle area who would all too willing to let me tag along with them on rides and they would rip my legs off. And that was what I needed. I needed people just to really push me to get faster. And two months before the Games, I moved to Colorado Springs, which is where the Olympic Training Center is, and I stayed there. That summer leading up to the Games was probably the most stressful period of my life because Paralympic sports or really the Olympic sports in general, in the USA, it's not sponsored by the government. So people often have to have jobs outside of their sport, and it's very challenging to be a professional Olympic or Paralympic athlete and fund yourself as well as pay your mortgage, you'll say, or you know, pay rent. Outside of sports, I wanted to become a physical therapist. I'm digressing because it all comes together, believe me. But I've been studying physical therapy, so after sports, I can have a profession that allows me to give back to the community because... I think that's fantastic. And the human body is amazing. So that summer, I had just finished my first year of PT school. I've been riding my bike a ton. And then I moved to the Olympic Training Center. And then I was working 40 hours a week. I would leave Thursday night and then be in L.A. for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, training on the velodrome. Those of you who are not quite sure what a velodrome is, it's actually a banked track. It's a 250-meter circle or oval And the one in L.A., the corners are banked at about 45 degrees, and the track goes up two stories tall. So it's very steep and banked. So it's kind of like maybe you can think of a racetrack, like a really short, banked racetrack. And the bikes don't have any brakes on them. They only have one gear. And if you pedal forward, the wheels go forward. If you pedal backwards, the wheels theoretically would go backwards, but you can't change directions that quickly. So I would go down to L.A. and race around the velodrome and do my training there. And then I would fly back to Colorado Springs and then work during the day at a physical therapy clinic and then ride my bike from about 10 to midnight in my room on a trainer in front of the air conditioner and just suffer on a trainer. I mean, just doing the work, all the work that I could do to get faster, get fitter. Of course, I'd have the Olympics on while I trained as motivation. So it was a really tough lead up to the games that so many people had to sacrifice so much. My partner, I didn't get to see them very much. I was always riding my bike. I didn't get to spend as much time with Betsy. Now I go faster than she does. And I wouldn't change a thing, though. It was incredibly stressful. But all of that led me to the games. From London, we went to Wales. And in Wales, it was kind of rainy like Seattle. But I was ready for it because of all my winter training in Seattle. I knew how to ride in the rain. I knew I could put the effort in, the work that needed to happen to stay fast. And then when London rolled around, the first day of competition was the velodrome. And it was rocking experience. Princess Kate and Prince William were there in the audience. And he and I are about the same age. And seeing as I was born in Canada and part of the British Commonwealth, there was a very, 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 very small chance that, you know, we could get married and live happily ever after and I could become a princess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so having him there in the audience was very special. Yes, he was there with his wife, so, you know, dreams change, but, you know, I was still living out a dream, being in London in the games. My mom actually sat behind Prince William, and my mom was going nuts during the competition, and Prince William actually went up to her afterwards and congratulated her. It was it's a pretty surreal experience. The velodrome was amazing. I had actually broken the world record 
two days previously. And that's a pretty cool, cool feeling to know that you can go that fast. When the day came, I wasn't able to put my race together to break the world record, but I got the silver medal. I was the first silver medal for the Team USA in the Paralympics, and that feels cool. Just to get the ball rolling, to get your first medal under your belt, it's just awesome to stand up on the podium and to be there. A year later, I still don't have the words to describe it, but it was a dream come true. I mean, to see your family there, my mom, know people are watching me at home on TV. I just felt so thankful. A couple days later was the time trial, and that's my best event. It's on the road. We raced at a motorcycle racetrack called Brands Hatch outside northeast of London, and that's what I do best. I time trial the best. And the time trial is a unique sport cycling event because everybody races the same course and you go off one by one and it's whoever can do that course the fastest in French it's called against the clock and I think that's very fitting because it's just whoever can cross that line the quickest basically that means whoever can suffer the most there's no finesse you can't take it easy on any part of the course because you're losing time but I like that because I like picking my speed and just like trying to go faster, just trying to dig every energy out of my legs, out of my lungs, out of my heart, and just put it towards going faster. And in some ways, it's kind of sadistic because I feel like I'm suffering and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer more than anybody else. And by suffering the most, I've had some success. And I tell myself, whoever's going to beat me is just going to have to suffer more than me. And I tell myself that I can suffer more than anybody else here. So That's what I think about when I'm going up a hill or taking a sharp corner. I just say, whoever's going to beat me is going to have to be more aggressive and is going to have to dig deeper. But then I say, nobody can dig deeper than me. So that's what I do. I just dig deep and go fast. So crossed the finish line, waited for my competitors to cross the finish line, and I'd beaten the clock. I'd gone faster than anybody else. I'd won a gold medal. As soon as I saw my name come up on top, I mean, tears just down my face immediately because That was, for all intents and purposes, 10 years since the accident. So that was in summer of 2012. And to think about everything that had happened in those 10 years, to think of the sacrifice and the support that I've received from my family, my friends, my coworkers, thank you is not enough of a word. And so many people have a hand in that medal. And while I was the person who towed the line and I get to wear the medal around my neck, I want to share that medal with so many people because... Is not just mine. I can't say thank you enough. We are in the studio with Meg Fisher. Meg is a nine-time world champion cyclist and triathlete who competes for Team USA. She represented USA in the 2012 London Paralympics, where she won gold and silver. Meg, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you about coming to Montana and that change in your life. That song would be the Dixie Chicks, Wide Open Spaces. I was living in Chicago at the time when I heard that song, and that just spoke to me as to where I needed to be. I felt claustrophobic in Chicago. It's got a lot to offer, but it's not home, and I needed to leave. And that song talks about a girl packing up and moving away, moving out west, and that's that, that was me. Back to Mandela and the trail is traveled. Meg, thank you so much for coming on the trail as traveled and doing the show. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a treat. Let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. 
look good, have fun, safety third is probably one of my mantras that I repeat in my head all the time. But in truth, I think outdoor tips include being safe, of course, having fun. And then I think the third one is just knowing that you're capable of more than you know. Because you look good when you're confident. Oh, yeah. That's entirely it. Awesome. What song would you like to end the show with? Ocean by the John Butler Trio. I saw them when I was in Australia. I had gone on a three-month adventure where I went all around the country. And I saw the John Butler Trio when they came and played in Missoula. Couldn't believe they were here. And that song speaks to me of just freedom, wide open spaces, all of it. It's, it's beautiful. You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. I want to thank my guest this week, Megan Fisher. Megan completed her first triathlon in 2004 in Missoula, Montana, 11 months after her amputation. Before her accident, she was a competitive tennis player for the University of Montana. Not until after she lost her leg and nearly her life did she attempt a triathlon. After her first race in 2004, she knew that she could be a triathlete too. Megan is now a nine-time world champion cyclist and triathlete who competes for Team USA. Meg represented the USA in the 2012 London Paralympics, where she won silver and gold medals. Check out traillesstraveled.net to view pictures, read biographies, and discover suggested links from all of the guests featured on the Trail Less Traveled. Mi nombre es Mandela, your host of the Trail Less Traveled. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community of Missoula can start adventuring in the same fashion. My tip this week is to never underestimate yourself and what you can accomplish when you set your heart to something and practice. Patience and practice are two great mantras for anything in life. That's it for this week, Missoula. But until next week, get out there and shred the gnar. Because you know the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself. <laughs>